Well, we know that a parable is a story that Jesus told with a lesson or a spiritual truth sort of in parallel with it. And I feel myself over the years that we almost, although we believe all God's word, there's something very special about the words of Jesus. And when Jesus tells something, we really need to prick our ears up and listen. And particularly so at this passage, because it is in fact unique to Luke. It's not in the other Gospels. And Dr. Luke, of course, says at the beginning of his Gospel that he carried out some careful research to make sure that he got it right. And also, I think as a prelim, I'd like us to bear in mind, and I think Peter's picked this up already in, in his prayer, the value of each one. I think these days we're bombarded with numbers. I mean, we've had 400,000 in New Orleans. Each one special. A thousand crushed in Iraq. Each one special. We were in Birmingham uh, just a few days ago and drove past a church and there was a big notice outside, God is love. Wonderful. And underneath it said, God is loves you. I feel that sums it up. So whatever you are feeling, whatever your experience this morning, and mine too, God does love you. And he's proved that by telling the story, for example, of the lost sheep. 99, safely at home, but just one that had gone astray. Because God engages with individuals And in this parable, we have the two men that he engages with. So there is a relevance today, very much so, to you and I. Because God's unfailing love, as as Gwyneth read to us, uh, and his purposes are throughout all generations. If we just scan through it first, you see it does break down. The first verse gives us, verse 9, the context as to why Uh, Jesus was going to tell the parable then you get the story of the two men and finally in verse 14 uh, the lesson that Jesus wants to hammer home which I think he does very powerfully here so let's read it to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else Jesus told this parable Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, or prayed to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, the context is quite clear. 
Uh, unlike when Jez preached uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, about the rich man and Lazarus, we don't quite know what triggered that uh, parable that Jesus told. But this one we quite clearly do. First of all, it was people who were relying on themselves. Specifically, that they are righteous. I.e., that they have a right standing before God and consequently their behaviour is okay. They were relying on themselves for this relationship with God. And of course, as we shall see, and those of you who are Bible students, you know that Jesus demolishes a life that is built on personal strengths, personal qualities, personal character, good as they may be, because they can become overpowered and as he says in Luke 11, takes away the armour in which we have trusted. A bit like Goliath and David. People who were relying on themselves, a self-built righteousness, a do-it-yourself self-reliance in regard to our relationship with God and it's fatally flawed. We have the example of Peter himself who when in, in Matthew 16 Jesus said to them that I must go to Jerusalem, I will suffer, I will be killed, I will on the third day rise again. And he says, never. This is just not going to happen. Jesus had to say to him, look Peter, you've got this totally wrong. You've not got in mind the things of God, you've got in mind the things of men. So you're like Satan, get behind me. Peter learnt the lesson. In his second letter, later on, the very first verse, he addresses it to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, that's it, have received a faith as precious as ours. Relying on themselves. And what is true of individuals is true of nations. The Bible tells us that righteousness exalts a nation but that sin of self-righteousness is a disgrace to any people and we read again earlier that the Lord foils the plans of the nations but it's his plans that stand firm forever. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and don't we all as individuals, as a church uh, as families and as a nation be vigilant against this sin of pride and improper self-reliance that omits God relying on themselves and then there's the, those who were looking down on others who were despising and treating with contempt other people it's something that Herod and the soldiers did when Jesus was arrested. They ridiculed him, they mocked him before they sent him back in an elegant robe to Pilate, looking down on others. And here, of course, in this, we can safely assume that the Pharisees were among those whom Jesus was targeting because we're going to be talking about one in a moment. The Pharisees, of course, were those who thought themselves rather separate and uh, important uh, than the rest of their uh, fellow people. 
They were strict, they were strong on outward show, they developed a traditional teaching of their own that they put in parallel and of equal authority with the written law, strong on a state-controlled religion and saw themselves as the religious elite and I read only this, this last week doing the research for this, there's a proverbial saying, if only two people were expected to go to heaven, one of them would be a Pharisee. That was their view of themselves, so important, looking down on others. Well, so let's have a look at the characters now. We can see that uh, the reason that Jesus was going to tell this for people who were relying on themselves for their righteousness and looking down on everyone else. Well, I've called the Pharisee a good man, bad man. And the first thing he did, we're told, is he prayed about or to himself. He was blinded by his pride. And many of you will know in John chapter 9 the story of the blind man whom Jesus healed. And um, the Pharisees said about Jesus these words, we know that this man is a sinner. And the man who'd been healed said, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. And that picks up the whole Bible truth. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord doesn't hear me, says the psalmist. The Pharisee should have known that. And then he says, of course, I'm not like other men. Other men. He also should have known that the Bible says he who trusts in himself is a fool. No wonder it's called an offensive gospel. Those who are pure in their own eyes, who've lived up to their own DIY religion and standards, are fools. He says, I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer, literally unrighteous. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this thing that came on stuck to the bottom of my shoe, the tax collector. And it was C.S. Lewis who said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people and of course, as long as you are looking down, you can't see something that is above you. This poor, blind, good man, bad man, hadn't listened to what Jesus had said. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins, your devaluing and denigration of others. Oh, I'm not those things, good as those things are, not to be a, rob uh, a robber, an evildoer, an adulterer, uh, and so on. But he said, I am relying on the things that I do. I fast twice a week. That could be good. I tithe a tenth of everything I get. That's good. But for this man, pride is a sin. He had a high opinion of himself, his achievements and his own importance. He exalts himself. And it's a very unpleasant characteristic. We had a master at school who was always, whether he was teaching or walking about the school, had his head up and he was looking down his nose at everybody. And when he was walking along the corridor, if there were boys in his way, he'd get the end of his gown and he'd go flick, 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 looking down his nose at these lads. 
we didn't like him at all. And I learnt later, when I actually taught at the same school, that the staff didn't like him either. He was not a pleasant man. He who exalts himself is an unpleasant character and I'm sure our hearts don't warm towards this Pharisee. But what about the wider church today? Isn't it possible for those with a particular theological grouping or an ecclesiastical grouping to look down on others who differ? Or for the church which is, in quotes, more successful, and that usually refers to numbers, maybe could look down on those that are stuck in their old ways in order to get out the rut and do something different? It's, it's possible, friends. And what about society in general? To look down on those who come from a different background, be it race, education, achievement or wealth, it's possible. And it's wrong and it's sinful and it's foolish. We have our cult of celebrities today set, who set fashion and behaviour patterns in magazines and media and they get many followers. Like sheep who've gone astray. I am told that I shouldn't wear socks with sandals. Now I'm glad Peter Lever did, so have I. And I was told this by the wife of uh, a dean of, um, who was the dean of a, a cathedral in Cyprus just a few days ago. She won't let her husband wear socks with his sandals, so he has to have sweaty feet. But there you go. I don't care, I must be honest, but who says so? Jesus didn't wear socks, I imagine. But, uh, yeah, alright, an aside and a little bit silly, but so easily we get caught up in being told what we ought to wear, we ought to do, we ought to be like, we ought to say. Uh, and I think that there is a danger in this. And equally and more importantly, there's this cult of what's been called the supermarket religion. You know, the pick and mix today, when people say, yeah, they are a bit spiritual, I'll have a bit of that and a bit of that and a bit of that, and then build up their own. And if you add to this what I think candidly is an overstress on individual rights and I believe coupled with that is a weakening of community I had a chat with a family a while ago and I gave them a little uh, Christian book and after a while uh, I said you know have you read the book and the lady said yes uh, brought it back and I said well what do you think to it then she said oh well people believe what they want to believe I said, well, yeah, of course they do. But it doesn't mean they're right. They used to think that stars were holes in the firmament of heaven in which God's glory shone. They used to believe the world was flat. They used to believe that the sun orbited the earth. Jehovah's Witnesses used to say that the world would end in 1917. As far as I know, it didn't. I could tell you I believe that Peter Comont's going to give me 500 quid for preaching this morning after this service. Do you believe that? Oh, you do? Oh, well, there you are. You know, I mean, it, 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 it's an actually a silly argument, isn't it, to say people believe what they like. It doesn't mean they're right. And certainly our Pharisee wasn't right. He wasn't justified before God. Jesus says so in verse 14 because his righteousness was built on the foundation with critical fault lines 
And Jesus had said elsewhere, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the crunch point, isn't it? And you know, he said he wasn't a robber. The eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. And I believe there's a link with all the commandments, or most of them, by this. It's possible to steal God's glory. It's possible, second commandment, to steal God's place. It's possible to steal his name. It's possible for children to steal their parents' honour. It's possible when you murder to steal a life, for adultery to steal a husband or a wife. When you have false testimony, you're stealing a reputation and when you're coveting in your mind, you're stealing a family or possessions. He said, I'm not one of those. I wonder if any of us would say we've never sinned in that way. I wouldn't. The truth was staring him and us in the face and all who met Jesus. But in the scriptures, and he should have known them and he did know them, but he must have been blind to it. It's not sacrifice and outward things that God wants. He wants a heart which says, I'm sorry. I am wrong. I am a sinner. A contrite heart. And I referred to John chapter 9 with the the man that uh, Jesus had healed of his blindness and the Pharisees at that point said to him are we blind too? have we got spiritual blindness? and he said you claim that you can see but you're wrong you're guilty you and I people today we have immense opportunity and privilege in that we have both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have the experience of the church and Christians through 2,000 years. We have the risen Lord Jesus, if we're Christians, indwelling us by the Holy Spirit. We are saved completely, not because of anything we've done, but because we are contrite in heart. And it's Jesus who saves us, Hebrews tells us, from useless rituals and acts that lead to death. The Pharisee, a good man, bad man. But Pharisees can be changed. For example, St Paul, the persecutor who became the preacher. He was a Pharisee who became a father figure in the early church. But it seems that our Pharisee wasn't but our tax collector was, as was Matthew, the author of the first gospel. I'll call the tax tax collector a bad man, good man. And it tells us here that he kept at a distance. And I wonder if this is suggesting that he even thought the Pharisee was better than he was. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. Which I wonder if this implies that the Pharisee did in his pride. But for him, heaven was silent. The tax collector beats his breast, a cultural expression of grief for his sin. 
the quote, I don't know where it comes from. Someone said, pride masks our thoughts. Humility owns up to them. And he did. And his prayer was this, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now I wonder if there's any Greek scholars here, but I think it's quite important to look at this little point because I believe that could be translated, God have mercy on me, the sinner. To the exclusion of all others, the Pharisee compared himself with other people. It's a bit like a race, isn't it? If there are six of us in a race, we may come second. We can say, well, he was better than me. He was better than me, but the others weren't. It's that sort of comparison. We're all on the same level, but one's a little bit better and not quite so good as the other. And so many people live like that today. Well, I'm better than him, or he goes to church, and all the rest. We've heard it a thousand times. But the tax collector, it seems to me, compared himself with the God. And that's like comparing the fastest runner in the world with the speed of light. No win. All losers. And Paul echoes this. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I'm light years away, God, from your holiness and your perfection. I'm the sinner, the worst. One commentator has used some rather dated language. He said, the tax collector was a rotter and he knew it. But the rotter, the tax collector, Jesus said, went home justified before God. The bad man, good man. So, we're there. The lesson, the last verse. All we can bring to God is our sin. Our pride, our selfishness, our uncleanness, our hypocrisy. You go on and on. I look into my own heart. I can find plenty more. That's all we can bring to God and ourselves and the sinner's prayer. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. No do-it-yourself religion, no developed philosophy, clever though it may be. No one else, only Jesus. The only way to God, the only name, by whom we can be saved. Shall we make sure this morning that we give him pride of place and let him be our pride and our joy?